Before the First World War, anti-German hysteria in the right-wing British press was echoed by strong anti-German sentiment in the languid corridors of the British Foreign Office. Here, bureaucrats like Air Crow were inclined to misinterpret anything the Germans did. It was all, wrote Crow, part of a master plan, a dark design, to achieve, quote, a German hegemony, at first in Europe and eventually in the world. One of the most glaring examples claimed these men was the German shipbuilding programme. Surely any nation building new warships on the scale the Germans were could only have one thing in mind, to challenge Britain's mastery of the seas. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The anti-German bureaucrats at the British Foreign Office and their contacts in the right-wing press loudly protested that the Germans were building a navy to drive the British off the oceans and out of their empire. It's something that school students have been taught ever since. But it's hot air. Leaving aside the ranting press and their foreign office friends, what's the evidence? Well, since 1898, the Germans had been building three new warships a year, which they stepped up to four between 1908 and 1912. After 1906, the ships were dramatically bigger than before. Of course, it reflected the success of Germany's well-organised industrial revolution, which had rapidly overhauled the shambolic British. But was it a threat to the British Empire? You just have to do a bit of basic mathematics. Britain's naval building programme meant that by 1912 she would have 34 up-to-date warships at sea or under construction, including two huge new Queen Elizabeth-class super-dreadnought battleships and three more on order. The Germans, by comparison, would only have 20 and would not be able to afford any of the new super-dreadnoughts at all. Well, you can argue about the significance of these figures if you like, but more important, as the Germans well knew, and as events in the First World War were to prove, the German coast was extremely, fatally easy to blockade. It was a relatively simple job for the British Royal Navy to prevent any ships ever entering or leaving any of the German ports. What makes the whole idea of a German naval conspiracy a nonsense? is that it was the Germans who were supplying the steel to build the British dreadnoughts. So the German naval programme presented no serious threat to the British. OK, so you're still not convinced. Well, don't take our word for it. Look at the top British admirals at the time. They were certainly losing no sleep at all over the Germans. The German naval programme was all so insignificant that they didn't even bother to make contingency plans to deal with a German naval attack. When they were asked to present the War Office with their plan if war broke out with Germany, their reply was so back of an envelope that they were always laughed out of the room. One of those at the meeting, a man who actually was sympathetic to the Navy, said that their plans looked as if they'd been cocked up in the dinner hour. Well, they probably had. But paradoxically, the Navy's unimpressive, but, as events proved, well-informed nonchalance, made it easier for Crow and his serious-minded anti-German cronies in the Foreign Office to win over the Foreign Secretary Edward Grey. Germans didn't keep their word, they said. 
They had agendas of their own. Well, anybody who's had dealings with the Russians, of course, knew they were just the same. Perhaps even worse, they were actually actively in real life threatening Britain's lines to India. The French also posed a real threat to British interests in Africa, and relations, negotiations indeed, between Britain and France had always been difficult. But the Foreign Office bureaucrats were very happy to negotiate conventions and ententes with the Russians and the French. They believed, however, that the Germans couldn't be trusted, so there could be no entente or agreements with them. It was in some indefinable way, for which there was of course not yet any hard evidence, the Germans who were plotting to take over the British Empire, invade Britain, rule the world. It was no good talking to the Germans, unlike the French and Russians, they wouldn't keep their word. Well, it was all a bizarre inversion of what was really happening. The Russians had never kept the convention they'd signed with Britain. They broke it almost straight away. But the right-wing press loved the idea of the Germans being the threat, and the Foreign Office Mandarins convinced themselves it was true. So something had better be done. Well, the first thing to do was to track down all those German spies, who were, you remember, according to the press, so dangerously infiltrating British society. Now, you remember that Lieutenant Colonel James Edmonds, head of a special section for intelligence at the War Office? He had, as we've seen, been presented with a massive pile of letters written to the Daily Mail, many of them in a jokey bid to win its £10 reward for stories about German spies. At the time, the paper was serialising the Q's latest best-selling novel about a German invasion. Well, in 1909, Edmonds presented a stack of these ridiculous claims about German espionage to a committee at the War Office. One of the committee who heard the evidence wrote that Edmonds was just a, quote, silly witness from the War Office. But the key man in the room was the War Secretary, Richard Haldane. He was a brilliant scholar, with a soft spot for the Germans. Like many men of his generation, he'd studied at a German university, Göttingen in his case. He spoke excellent German. He'd even published an English translation of the German philosopher Schopenhauer. But Haldane now found the senior civil servants in the room unaccountably and forcibly advising him to take this crazy lieutenant colonel's evidence seriously. We, of course, now understand why. So on the back of Edmund's ridiculous testimony, based on nothing but joke letters written into the Daily Mail, the civil servants persuaded Haldane to set up a secret service bureau exclusively to hunt down German spies. It would eventually become MI5 and MI6. Well, the first director of the Secret Service Bureau was Captain Vernon Kell. He gave himself the codename K. He was assisted by the retired head of Scotland Yard's special branch, William Melville, codename M. <laughs> Mel <laughs> Melville operated under the alias W. Morgan, General Agent, by 1914, K and M had spent five years hunting down German spies. Because of the Daily Mail's anti-German hysteria, the public had clogged their offices with so many alleged sightings they could barely cope. In the autumn of 1913 alone, they received 9,000 tip-offs. And that was just from people living in London. <laughs> but were there actually any German spies in Britain? By 1909, anti-German hysteria was spreading through British society. It was fed not on any facts about German policy, but by popular novels and the right-wing press. It had also seeped into the lazy corridors of the foreign and war offices. 
That year, 1909, they persuaded the Secretary for War to set up a new Secret Service Bureau under its chiefs K and M. Their only task was to track down and destroy the huge spy network the Germans were, according to the press, running in preparation for an invasion of Britain. But were there any German spies in Britain? Well, yes, there were. In 1901, the Germans had set up a small but well-funded outfit in Britain, the Nachrichtenabteilung. K and M, with their talent for secrecy, codenamed it N. <laughs> what was it called? The Nachrichtenabteilung. <laughs> These German agents in Britain were run by Gustav Steinhauer, who trained at the world-renowned Pinkerton Detective Agency in Chicago. The official historian of British intelligence, Christopher Andrew, writes that M, in fact, knew Steinhauer well. Maybe he called him S. <laughs> Stop it. Back in 1901, they'd been working together on the tail of their common enemy, the dreaded Okhrana, the Russian secret police, who really were running operatives across Europe. Together, S and M had chased three Russian assassins at Queen Victoria's funeral. But such was the influence of the anti-Germans in the foreign and war offices that within a few years, M and Steinhauer found themselves not working together, but against each other. What K and M's Boy Scouting failed to discover, however, was that Steinhauer's spy outfit, N, had nothing to do with the German army or with invasion. N was run by the German Navy and only ever had a couple of dozen agents in Britain. What they were chiefly trying to do was to steal naval plans. The reality was, as we now know, that by stark contrast and whatever the press and Lieutenant Colonel Edmonds or K and M claimed, the German army never had a single agent in Britain before the First World War. Even so, in whispered conversations in the Foreign Office and at the War Office, the new military counterintelligence enthusiasts, says Christopher Andrew, simply assumed that the German army was running a full-scale espionage system. It tied in very neatly indeed with a black picture Air Crow and his friends, not to mention the Q and the Daily Mail, along with K and M, were creating. Germany was poised to invade Britain. Now all this anti-German hysteria had serious political implications. It was why the secret talks, which last time we saw starting up between the British and the French armies late in 1905, stealthily hardened over the years into government policy. Somehow, the British Army's search for a new role after the debacle of the Boer War, the hope for a cheap, quick and dashing victory in Flanders, transformed itself into a hard commitment to go to war against Germany. Even though it had never been agreed by Cabinet or Parliament, British soldiers were quietly being committed to fighting on the ground alongside the French if the Germans ever invaded. Starting from the time the new Liberal Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey took office in December 1905, well-placed anti-Germans in the Foreign Office took action to make sure that Grey wouldn't interfere in the secret talks with the French army. Grey's private secretary, Louis Mallet, wrote behind his back to Bertie the Bull, the ambassador in Paris. He told Bertie that Grey was, quote, a miserable creature who needed, quote, bucking up. Bertie fired back an official letter to Grey and told him that the French would feel, quote, deserted unless Britain agreed to send troops. Well, Grey had a reputation for doing whatever his advisers told him. As a student, he'd been sent home from Oxford for being idle. He'd never been abroad. 
but he still mistrusted the Germans as much as Air Crow or Bertie did. He remembered his grandfather showing him the Aurora Borealis when he was a small boy in 1870, toward the end of the Franco-Prussian War. That, said Gray's grandpa, could almost be the light from the Germans burning Paris. No wonder then that even before he became Foreign Secretary, Gray had been writing that, quote, Germany is our worst enemy and our greatest danger. He was never going to be the man to obstruct the army talks or the foreign office Germanophobes. Nor was the new Prime Minister, Campbell Bannerman. He was a man so pro-French, he was known to take a steamer to Calais and back just to take lunch. And one of the shocking things about foreign policy in the period before the First World War is that hardly anyone outside the Foreign Office could influence what the Foreign Secretary and the Prime Minister did. The reason was historical. Foreign policy had always been the private prerogative of the monarch. By the 20th century, monarchs of course had very little influence, but foreign policy was still only discussed with the Foreign Secretary, the Colonial Secretary, the Indian Secretary and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Oh, and occasionally the Prime Minister. In reality, writes the historian Thomas Ott, quotes, the cabinet was no effective check on the powers of the foreign secretary. And in Edward Gray's case, that meant no effective check on the men who made up his mind for him. And by 1910, that meant men like Air Crow. And also the equally anti-German permanent undersecretary, head of the foreign office, Sir Charles Harding, a man who was notoriously just as indolent as Gray, but who was so ruthless and so well-connected that he was knighted six times and was nicknamed the Grand Panjandrum. The consequence of all this was that instead of making common cause with Germany to prevent the rising threat of Russia and maintain stability in Europe, the Foreign Office, Sir Edward Grey, and hence Britain, found itself doing exactly the opposite. Britain would align itself with the French and Russians against the imaginary aggression of Germany. The result of that, of course, was vastly to increase German fears for their own safety. The Germans then put more money into armaments, and that in turn meant enormously increasing the chances of a brutal and protracted European war. By the time a new Liberal government took over in 1905, British foreign policy had been increasingly under the influence of a German-hating clique in the Foreign Office. It tallied all too neatly with the talks we've mentioned before between the British generals and their French opposite numbers. The French were also, of course, deeply suspicious of the Germans. Since 1905, the British army had been conducting covert talks with the French to agree a plan to fight together in France and Belgium when the expected German invasion came. Hardly anyone in government knew about it, and Parliament and the Liberal Cabinet would certainly not have agreed had they known. In 1910, the army appointed a new director of military operations. He was Brigadier General Henry Wilson, an abrasive Ulsterman, who was even more anti-German than his predecessors, perhaps because, unlike most upper-class English, he'd been largely brought up not by a German governess, but by a French one. While commander of the Staff College at Camberley, he'd become a firm family friend of his opposite number in Paris, head of the École Supérieure de la Guerre. His name was Ferdinand Foch, spelled F-O-C-H, usually mispronounced as Foch, but in fact he was a Breton, so it's Foch. For years, Wilson and Foch had been discussing in detail the part British soldiers would play in defending France against a German invasion. 
The first thing Wilson did on his new appointment as Director of Military Operations in 1910 was to hang a huge map of the Franco-Belgian border on his wall. Then he went on holiday, 17 times, cycling around the battlefields where he expected a British Army expeditionary force to fight. An article on him in the Army and Navy Gazette commented on his, quotes, passion for the scenery along the Franco-German border. But it wasn't the scenery Wilson was looking at, it was the lie of the battlefields. On one occasion, at Mar-la-Tour near Metz, he stopped at the statue of a woman representing France. He later wrote that he, quotes, laid at her feet a small bit of map I've been carrying, showing the areas of concentration of the British forces on her territory. He spent many days in Paris, chewing over the details with Foch and other French generals, including Joseph Joffre, the new French commander-in-chief. By 1911, the anti-German brigade at the Foreign Office realised that sooner or later these covert Anglo-French army talks were going to have to receive some kind of official government approval. And sooner rather than later, opinion in the Liberal cabinet that summer was running very much against getting involved with the French against the Germans. The French and Germans were deep in another spat over Morocco and a large majority of the cabinet didn't want the French to drag them in. The anti-German Foreign Office contingent knew that they needed to head off this anti-French cabinet sentiment before it got enshrined in any kind of policy. Their campaign was kicked off early in August 1911 by a memo. It came from Lord the Bull Bertie, the strongly anti-German British ambassador in Paris. Bertie bullishly reported conversations his military attaché had been having with the French commander-in-chief Joffre. They'd discussed war with Germany. Joffre, wrote Bertie airily, quotes, attaches the very greatest importance to the cooperation of a British expeditionary force. In other words, a British army fighting alongside the French in France. Bertie made it clear in his memo that Joffre had agreed all the details of a joint British-French operation down to where and on which day of the campaign the British soldiers would arrive. It was, of course, the result of all Brigadier General Wilson's cycling holidays. Bertie's extraordinary memo landed on the desk of Prime Minister Herbert Asquith. He'd become Prime Minister in 1908, despite the drink problem that gave him his punning nickname, Squiff. Asquith had not been informed about the plan the British Army had for years been developing to fight alongside the French. But then, besides the Foreign Secretary Grey and War Secretary Haldane, hardly anyone knew about it. You can imagine Asquith's surprise then when he read Bertie's report... A plan to fight in France, agreed in detail? He immediately summoned Grey, Haldane and their various officials to the war office, including Wilson, the cycling man, to find out what on earth was going on. It seems to have been a very bad-tempered meeting. Brigadier General Wilson, who seemed more often than not to be in a foul temper, wrote in his diary that Grey looked to him like, quote, an ignorant, vain and weak man unfit to be the foreign minister of any country larger than Portugal. At the meeting, Wilson brashly defended the plans he'd worked out with French General Joffre. He informed everyone that the British would send a small army to assist the French, and together they would rapidly, relatively easily, defeat the Germans. He oozed confidence. Asquith was suitably taken aback. He wrote to his girlfriend, Venetia Stanley, she was 27, he 62 and married, that Wilson was, quote, a poisonous, clever ruffian. But to his amazement, Asquith found that Gray and Haldane were backing Wilson and the army. 
Actually, it wasn't that surprising. Both of them had been in on the army talks from the start. And they were being told by their senior civil servants that the Germans were all but finalising a plan to invade not only Belgium and France, but Britain as well. As we now know, of course, it wasn't true, but certainly Grey, and perhaps Haldane also, had been led to believe it. Asquith immediately fell in line with Haldane and Grey. Wilson probably went back to his large war map of the Belgian border, telling himself that he'd bludgeoned the Prime Minister into line. What Wilson didn't know was that back in 1905, Asquith, Grey and Haldane had agreed a secret pact to work together. In that year, Balfour's Tory government had fallen and Campbell Bannerman's Liberals took over. Asquith, Grey and Haldane had been at Grey's fishing lodge at Relugas in Mauritius in Scotland. The agreement they made, the so-called Relugas Compact, was originally a plot to replace the then Liberal leader Henry Campbell Bannerman with Asquith. Well, that didn't in fact happen until 1908, when Campbell Bannerman retired through ill health and died 19 days later. But even after Asquith became Prime Minister, he, Grey and Haldane stayed loyal to their Relugas Compact. It effectively committed them to work together in the new government, whatever happened. So that was the main reason why, at the August 1911 bad-tempered meeting, Asquith had quickly fallen into line with the army plan to fight in France. Asquith could see it had already been accepted by his Relugas pals, Grey and Haldane. When the Navy representatives in the room announced that they wouldn't be cooperating with the army plan, Asquith tartly told them not to be childish. By the end of the meeting, the War Office had effectively accepted the army plan. The British Army would go to war with Germany alongside the French. And only then, after it had been agreed, did the other members of the Liberal Cabinet get to hear about it. In August 1911, the anti-German cliques at the Foreign and War Offices and in the British Army railroaded a plan through the War Office. The Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary and War Secretary were now all signed up to sending the British Army to fight the Germans alongside the French. This was despite there being no evidence whatever that the Germans seriously intended any aggression in Europe, unless, that is, they were forced into it for example, by being encircled by nations like the Russians, French and British, entering into military agreements with each other. But now Britain had been committed to fight alongside the French and Russians, despite being under no legal or treaty obligation at all. The colonial secretary, Lulu Harcourt, soon discovered what had happened at the War Office. On the 4th of September 1911, he received an irate letter from his cabinet colleague, Walter Runciman. Somehow, perhaps because he was a friend of Mrs Asquith, Runciman had found out about the army plan. The sea is our natural element, thundered Runciman, and the sooner they realise that we're not going to land troops, the better will be the chances of preserving European peace. It was a perfectly good age-old argument that British strength was in its navy, and the less the British committed themselves to fight on land, the better they had usually done. A 1903 inquiry had shown that the British Navy was so dominant that no foreign army had a hope of invading. Harcourt also had a letter from John Morley. Now, he was Secretary of State for India, and therefore, like Harcourt, among the few who were supposed to have been briefed about foreign policy. 
Morley was also more aware of the Russian problem than anyone else. They must certainly be mad, wrote Morley. A very short cabinet will pulverise them. But Asquith didn't even permit the cabinet to discuss the matter until the 1st of November 1911, three months later. By then, the army had been hatching its plan for nearly six years. Once again, Lulu Harcourt sat scrawling notes on what was being said in cabinet, even though formally no one was supposed to. We know from his notes, which were in the Bodleian Library, that India Secretary Morley opened up by loudly condemning what the army had been up to. How on earth had Britain become committed to sending an army to France without anybody in cabinet or parliament ever discussing it? Haldane brushed the criticism aside. These were just chats between British and French generals, he said. Nothing serious. All general staffs, he said, were in close touch with other friendly staffs. Foreign Secretary Grey then mumbled that no firm written commitments had been made. But it's obvious from Harcourt's notes that very few in the room believed them. This wasn't just some friendly discussion between generals. It had turned into a commitment. Asquith tried to calm ministers down. Harcourt notes that Asquith said, quit, he would defend the cabinet as the only government of the country. But it sounded a pretty hollow promise. Colonial Secretary Harcourt shot back that the whole thing was, quote, criminal folly. And 15 out of the 20 ministers angrily agreed. Committing themselves to landing troops in France at the outbreak of war was tantamount to signing up to go to war alongside the French no matter what. A fortnight later, there was another furious cabinet debate. Harcourt illegally scribbled that the new First Lord of the Admiralty, one Winston Churchill, went on and on about the benefits of cooperation with the French. He was, noted Harcourt, quotes, like a verbose Napoleon. <laughs> this time, the cabinet forced Asquith, Grey and Haldane to agree, quotes, that no communications should take place between the general staff here, that means the generals, and the staffs of other countries, which can directly or indirectly commit this country to naval or military intervention. But two weeks later, the ministers were still shouting bitterly at each other. Harcourt noted Gray's assurance that, quote, he did not mean that the French had legitimate expectations of our military help, which of course was rubbish. That's exactly what Joffre and the French general staff had been led to expect. India Secretary Morley insisted that this wasn't good enough and that they must inform the French quite clearly that whatever madcap scheme they had been cooking up with the British army, the British would not give military assistance at the start of a war. Asquith, with his back by now to the wall, tried to propose a compromise. But the ministers then squabbled furiously over what it should be. Finally, the two sides agreed to the watery statement that, quotes, at no time has the cabinet decided whether or not to give either military or naval assistance to France in the event of her being at war with Germany. Well, it was something, but it wasn't very much. Churchill sided openly with Grey, Haldane and Asquith. He furiously demanded Harcourt stop making notes of what was being said in the cabinet meetings. Hmm. And for a few weeks, Harcourt wrote everything up afterwards from memory. Then he got back to taking notes, as he had always done. Grey was now going around claiming that the British were not formally committed to anything. But senior civil servants and army officers in the know believed that whatever had been decided in cabinet, the French could still expect British troops to fight alongside them from the start if war broke out with Germany. Indeed, the anti-Germans in the Foreign Office were now claiming that if the French couldn't get British support, they would all abandon Britain altogether and do a deal with the dreaded Germans and Britain would be isolated. It was more nonsense. 
The notion that Britain might make common cause with the Germans to solve their various common problems, for example with the Russians, wasn't even considered. The irony is that in Berlin, the Germans, fearful for the very survival of their new country, were hotly discussing exactly how to avoid war with the British. In February 1912, Gray informed the cabinet that the German Kaiser had personally invited him to Berlin as his guest, quote, to talk things over, in the hope of, quote, better relations between their two countries. Did this mean there was a possibility of a breakthrough? Could the Kaiser possibly convince Gray to change direction? Well, we'll find out next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod. History Café Pod.